Blog Talk Radio. like to welcome everybody to Vibe Time. I'm so sorry. I'm a little bit unorganized. I'm sitting over here trying to start my Facebook live feed and, you know, because I can't put it with the music anymore. Welcome everybody to Vibe Time, Facebook Live. I can't use my music on the Facebook video anymore because they say I'm stealing somebody else's music. So I have to wait until that music ends. So I'm trying to organize myself. So I apologize. I'm bringing Denny back on the air um, with me. This is going to be kind of part two to talk about Williamsburg and other things that he's experienced because last time with part one, we kind of, um, we could have probably talked for a couple more hours <laughs> on that subject with Williamsburg. So um, I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to bring him on in just a second. But I do want to mention that y'all do not forget if you haven't purchased any tickets yet, that this weekend, if you go to the Cabin on 360's Facebook page, Holly Mullins is coming um, to do, of course, an investigation there, but she's also coming to do a um, seance at the Cabin on 360. And y'all have no idea. I mean, last I, I had never went to a seance before. I never attended anything like that. And you think that they're really um, creepy because, you know, we watch too much TV and TV always dramatizes everything. Um, but I'm going to tell you all, her seance was very, very powerful. So if you get to go to this event or if you have not, like, purchased your tickets, I'm telling you, it's, like, really intense, really energetic. Like, I wish that I could just do one-on-one holding hands with her just to get some of that energy that I need right now. So, um, y'all, if you haven't purchased the tickets to the event coming up this weekend, please do. She's doing readings, um, cards, uh, $30.00 go for it. It's going to be a really good event. I hate that I have to miss it, but doctors call, so that's where I'll be at. Anyway, I don't want to cut um, Denny's time short because we got about now 56 minutes since I've been sitting here talking, so I'm going to bring Denny on right now, and uh, let's see. Let me know if there's an echo in my phone, and how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? You're fine. I Look, I didn't even give you a proper introduction because I'm like, okay, I should have done that. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. No problem. I'm like, we did part one. Um, question, can you hear me okay? Does anything sound echoey to you? Um, no, I mean, I think you sound fine. 
Okay, good, because the last time I did my show, it was a little echoey, and people were having a hard time hearing me, and I think it was because I had people on speakerphone. Um, So it was really difficult. Sure. That's understandable. So I want to make sure you can hear me. Yeah, okay, and I want to make sure I'm not echoing, because I have three devices. I've got the laptop my phone on live, and then I have another cell phone. So I'm like running two cell phones and a live feed. For sure. <laughs> and the laptop. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like my a multitasking. Yeah, just a little bit. I'm a little bit, I'm running just a tad bit late this evening. I was trying to get everything packed up for, for where I'm going, and I, you know how it goes. You want to make sure you don't forget stuff. Of course, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> So how have you been since the last time we've talked? Uh, I've I've been incredibly busy. Um, it's definitely been a, a a heck of a paranormal month for me. You know, investigation after investigation, and, you know, tours and podcasts, interviews. I, I, I'm digging it, um, but I'll be I'll be glad for a a bit of a reprieve at the end of the month. <laughs> yeah, oh, I oh, I bet. I yeah. bet. I I really enjoyed watching your um, investigation that you had at Williamsburg. I didn't get a chance to watch the like the other live one you did, but the night that, um, you know, when you got off the air with me and you did your own when you did that live, I enjoyed that. I haven't had a chance to watch the other the other one. Yeah, it you know we ran into a, a few technical difficulties, but you know we we pushed through it. Uh, I honestly wish we had stayed probably at least another hour because things were, you know, just starting to get interesting when I realized, oh, well, the hour's up. (laughs) So long, folks. Thanks for watching. (laughs) I know, right? I know. Can you you touch a little bit on Williamsburg in case there's anybody that, you know, is on, you know, on the air with us or anybody that's going to tune into Facebook that, you know, I mean, I got friends from all over the place and, um, some people may not know where Williamsburg is at or what it's about. Can you touch on that a little bit for me? Um, so Williamsburg is actually one of the, I guess, the oldest cities in America. Um, originally founded in 1699, but you know the history there actually goes as far back as uh, 1638, when colonists branched off from. Jamestown to look for better fortifications against the Native Americans, and they settled in that area. Um, then later on in 1699, they decided to make it the the capital of Virginia, and you know they wanted to give it a new name, a new look. They brought in Francis Nicholson, uh, who you know essentially designed uh, the streets, um, you know, and implemented a lot of uh, what you see there today. Now, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, um, where I do tours and I do a lot of, you know, paranormal investigations of my own, that is the um, the Outdoor Living History Museum. It's actually the the largest one in the United States. A lot of people don't actually know that. And basically how this place came to be, uh, in the 1920s, you had a gentleman who was working at Bruton Parish Church. Uh, his name was 
hold on, Reverend Dr. W.A.R. Goodwin, say that three times fast, uh, <laughs> who took this, you know, idea people were pushing around at the time and said, you know, hey, what if we take the city of Williamsburg and recreate it to make it look the way it did during the 18th century when it was the capital of the colony of Virginia. And, you know, he's just a a typical religious man. So he's like, okay, I can't bankroll this. So I need to find a guy with deep pockets. And he actually ends up uh, approaching Henry Ford from Ford Motor Company and says, hey, Mr. Ford, I've got this fantastic idea. Would you be willing to drop some money on the venture? And, you know, Ford takes a couple of weeks and politely declines the offer. Um, as it would turn out, Henry Ford is busy trying to recreate an 18th century city of his own. Now, uh, a few months pass, and uh, John D. Rockefeller of uh, Standard Oil Company and uh, Reverend Goodwin cross paths. And Goodwin approaches him, and Rockefeller, he's a little, he's a little hesitant about the idea. He says, eh, no, no, you know what, but I'm good, I'm good. No, thanks. I, I, like, I like the way you think, though. And Goodwin says, all right, you know, I picked up on the hesitation, so maybe I could try him again at another point. And a few more months pass. Um, they bump into one another at a banquet dinner, and Goodwin asks Rockefeller if they can go for a walk. The walk lasts for about 20 minutes, and he pitches him again, you know, hey, let's make Williamsburg look the way it did during the 18th century. You know, I'll do my part, you do your part, and we can really give the American people something that people will talk about for ages. And at the end of this walk, uh, John D. Rockefeller had agreed to spend $5 million of his own money on this, this historic undertaking. Um, but by the time the, the restoration of Williamsburg uh, had completed, he had actually spent $68 million of his own money. Oh, goodness. Oh, and wow. And he joked about it. Yeah, yeah. He joked about it for years and said, the most expensive walk I had ever taken in my life. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So basically, um, these guys came in and Rockefeller started going around and, you know, buying up properties. Um, there were 88 original structures from the 18th century still standing. Um, he, he got those, and then there were over 300 buildings left standing from the Civil War. So pretty much all those buildings had to go, and then they had to start, you know, excavating and looking for, you know, foundations to the original structures and, any kind of evidence that would help them recreate these 18th century buildings. Um, and all the while, they were actually still living here in this area because, you know, it was a residential area. So Rockefeller was basically having to go and knock on doors and say, hi, I'm John D. Rockefeller. How much would you like for your house? <laughs> and, you know, some people fought him. You know, they didn't want to sell. They didn't want to move out. You know, they had grown up there, they had grown old there, it wasn't as easy as he thought it would be. So he ended up basically working out deals with people, you know, saying, okay, um, I'll buy this property from you and let you continue living here, but 
when you die, it is officially mine, or it belonged to the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, uh, which is the oh, group that they would, of course, create. Yeah. Um, the Actually, the um, I know we talked about the Pete Randolph House. The last physical resident um, to live in Colonial Williamsburg, whose family had made a deal with Mr. Rockefeller, um, were, was uh, Gertrude Ball Diversa, um, who passed away at the, in the within the mother-in-law suite at the Randolph House in 2003, believe it or not. Yeah, her her, her oh. family is very very interesting, um, but her her dad um, made an made an agreement with Mr. Rockefeller, and you know, dad basically said, you know what, I'll sell you the house, but you have you have to continue letting my children live here up until their death, and that agreement was struck, and Rockefeller and Colonial Williamsburg held up their end. Um, that, oh what, Miss Diversa actually. Yeah, she went on to um, work for Colonial Williamsburg for about 30 years. Uh, and actually, at one point, she was um, what they called in her day a, a hostess, but today they called us a, a sites interpreter, um, you know, someone who's dressed up in the 18th century garb and giving um, historical tours of that house, which I, right. I've always thought was kind of cool. You know, what better person to give a tour of that house and the very woman who lived there from the 1930s on up. I mean, that's, that's great. You don't get much better than that. That's true. That is very true. And that house, I, I like that house. Like I told you last time I went in there and just about every single picture I took blurred every one of them. (laughs) Just about. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's like I tell people on tours all the time, it, this place has an energy to it, and it'll let you know if it doesn't want you photographing things. Yeah, yeah, yep, that is true, and it sure did. Yeah. No, but you're I, right. You know, I, get... I mean, you're – I'm sorry, I was mm-hmm. saying you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, I mean – I get um, I get people who you know kind of scoff and laugh about it you know when I say hey the house will let you know and uh, that they come up to me like oh wow uh, <laughs> you were right after all and I'm like yeah yeah I've been doing this long enough you know I I know this house like the back of my own hands I mean <laughs> I've been inside I've walked around on the property I've stood on the back steps you know I I know what's here. I know what's here. Yeah, I think. Yeah, oh God, of course, because you're. I mean, you're there all the time. I I know one time when I did when I went out there, because I've been out there quite a few times. I mean, it was just like a place that I really um, enjoyed going mm-hmm. to just sit, you know, under that big tree and relax. A lot of times I go there really to clear my mind. Um, For sure. And I had done a couple of lives also out there. Um, and I know that I was sitting on the bench that that's in the back of the Randolph house. And, you know, I was doing you know, pretty good. I was just clearing my mind, but I, I knew that there were presences there. You can feel them, particularly when you're sitting there mm-hmm. kind of clearing your mind. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, 
You know, it's interesting that we're talking about Mr. Versa. Um, she actually, before she died, gave the uh, the Cloyne Wingsburg uh, Foundation a lot of ghost stories. Um, you know, personal experiences from her and family members and, um, you know, like family friends that would come to visit and stay with them over the years. And she had some pretty wild stories, I must say. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of one of the last experiences I remember she had in that house. She said uh, she it was her and uh, another hostess. Uh, they just closed things up for the night. All the guests had gone, and uh, they locked up. And she asked the uh, the girl she was working with, hey, go go into the side hallway and get her cloaks, would you? I need to go lock up the back door. And, you know, the girl said, okay. And uh, Mr. Versa went to the the back of the house, and when she got to the door, she instead opened it up rather than locking it. And she looked out in the mm-hmm. courtyard, and she was like, okay, closed the door, locked it. And no sooner she slid the thumb bolt into place on that door, she heard the, the other girl screaming bloody murder from somewhere within the house. So she took off running, got over uh, into the side hallway where she found her by the door, crying her eyes out, shaking all over. And she said, what's wrong? What, what happened? She said, I came to grab our cloaks, and as I walked by the upstairs landing, I saw these two little blonde girls running and playing together. And next thing I know, they disappeared. And Mr. Versa looked at her, and she, you know, kind of awkwardly, and she didn't really say anything. And then finally she spoke, and she said, dear, this house has been here for a few hundred years. You mean to tell me you didn't think it was haunted? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I I can only imagine how how that poor girl must have felt in that situation. Me, I, I, I would know. have just laughed. Yeah, but uh, you gotta love it. Yeah, yeah that is that is weird. I mean, it's funny, <laughs> and it's just mm-hmm. funny that it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's well, like I how could you not know that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's one thing that kind of gets embedded into interpreters' heads. You know, when they come to work there it's like okay if at any point you're going to this house we should probably tell you things might happen don't worry about right. it <laughs> right uh, but, i mean there are there are those who will absolutely downright refuse to go inside that house or even go anywhere near it i mean i know tour guides who have been you know touring the streets there for years who will stand on uh, you know across the street in the grass and put their back to the house because they don't want to get close enough to it where anything might latch on to them, you know, heaven forbid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I don't think that, you know, being there as many times as I've been there and I could be wrong. I just, I just don't see anything latching on to you from there because I just think that they you know, are, content where they're at, if that makes sense? Am I not making sense on that? No, no, no. You you very much are making sense. Um, You know, I I can honestly say that I've never, at least not that I've been consciously aware of, um, you know, 
had anything latch on per se, but I've definitely had them follow. And it was more of just like a, I know what you're doing and I'm just going to follow along and listen. And because I've like, I, I can recall several instances where, you know, I've been with a, a particular tour group and we talked to one spirit in particular, uh, you know, who would give us his name, uh, which was Richard through the spirit box. And then we, you know, take another hour on the street, get back to our end location, do another spirit box session, and he comes through again. And we're like, okay, wait, you followed us from the Randolph house. Why don't you go back? <laughs> you, right. you can't go home, you know. Um, and I, I don't think it was a matter of, you know, wanting to – hitch a ride out of town per se it was just more of a a curiosity you know kind of deal like well if you're telling stories about all of us why don't i tag along and make sure you're telling them correctly right i wonder what would happen theory wise if you like tested it with people you know in your group and gave incorrect information if you felt a presence with you. I wonder if it would like like tap you or let you know that it was wrong. Well, so that, it's funny that you bring that up because I actually um, I did that one night where I I, I took a story and I um, I I kind of twisted the, the details a little bit and I did it with mm-hmm. the, I did it with the spirit box running beside me. At a, at a low volume, and all of a sudden, um, a male yelled through, liar! <laughs> everyone, everyone looked, and I looked at the spirit box, and I was like, did you guys hear that? And they're like, yeah, somebody called you a liar. And I said, why am I a liar? He said, uh, wrong detail. And I said, oh, well, if you care to tell the story, we're listening. <laughs> And that's sure why uh, yeah I mean he started shouting things through the spirit box at us and we were just like holy <laughs> cow okay uh, yeah he was he was an interesting character he, he so he stays upstairs on the second floor uh, in what we believe is the oak panel bedroom Peyton Randolph house which you know anything about that house there's a lot of stories um that come out of there um yeah i believe quite a bit i believe it's the um spirit of a man who was um part of the peachy family that was living there in the mid 1800s um who i can, i'm still digging through historical records trying to uh figure out what his first name was but the family listed that he was an uncle and he was mentally disturbed so he would often stay upstairs out of sight and apparently one day um, he took a knife to his own throat and killed himself um, oh my god yeah and i firmly believe this angry um spirit that's up to male spirit that's up at the top there is is him um, and he's very he's very protective of the um, the the peachy children who are also there at that house. So it would make sense to me that it's their uncle. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, we um, we actually did an Estes Method session there last week, and we weren't really getting a, a lot of activity. So I was like, you yeah, know, let's try to Estes Method and see if we can kind of lure them out. And, I mean, we were asking question after question. I mean, we were getting nothing. So I I knew they respond well um, whenever I bring up the fire of 1839 that broke out in that house. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always a few of them there that are willing to talk about it. And as soon as I brought up the fire, that's when, you know, my guy that was um, plugged into the spirit box started shouting stuff out. And I said, you know, are there uh, any peachy children here with me right now that remember the fire from 1839? He said, yes. And I said, what can you tell me about that fire? Big. Oh, yeah? Anything else? Hot. Hot. Very hot. And, wow. you know, I mean, we had we had a whole dialogue opened up uh, about this fire. Um, apparently, there was a, a wedding at the house that day. Uh, there were a lot of people there. The fire, uh, there, there were some children in the house when the fire broke out, and a few of them got trapped in one of the rooms and died in that fire. Wow. Yeah. um, I've actually read the historical records. Um, We do know that at least two of the Peachy children died, um, Mary and Sally. Uh, Mary was eight years old and Sally was two. Um, Mary... She she's she's adorable. I mean, she she'll come out, um, you know, on tours and investigations, and she'll talk to you through Spirit Box, and she'll you know um, react very well with you know doing flashlight sessions and things like that. Um, she'll she'll answer anything you pretty much want to ask her, but it, she's consciously aware of her own death. Um, which I, I think is quite sad, you know, considering she was only eight yeah. years old. And that is sad. She has, yeah, she has has a very big attachment to the house, and she doesn't want to move on. I mean, she's she's content, and she's told me that a, a small handful of times now. Yeah, I mean, there's some people that they don't want to cross over. I know. Um, in my old neighborhood, a person had passed away, um, and they—they they, you can't cross them over. They don't want to go. They want to stay right where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She just she you know Absolutely. she knows what happened to her, but she just does not. That was her house, and she will not cross over. And she stays um, at the foot of the steps and. Her energy is so strong that when I try to go near that particular spot where her house was at, mm-hmm. I can't, it's like she, I don't know, the energy is so strong she will not let me pass a certain point. That's how strong the energy is. Yeah, I believe it. And yeah. sometimes that's that's just how it is. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. 
intriguing. Yeah. yeah. So I can't, Thank when you. I get back from all this, you know, from where I'm going, um, I'm looking forward. I'll schedule it with you um, just to come out and, you know, investigate with you. All, every yeah. time I go to get a ticket for something, everything is freaking sold out. <laughs> I'm just like, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, serious. Uh, I went there last time, it was sold out. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? My girlfriend Marjorie and I went sold out. And I'm like, are you kidding? So, you yeah, know, I mean, you're just so popular out there. We can't get out there to investigate with a group of people because you're sold out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Tickets, you know, can sell like hotcakes. Uh, you know, I always tell people it's like, why, you know, put off till tomorrow what you can do today? Because, you know, if you wait till tomorrow, those tickets could be gone. Um, yeah. And especially like with the the tour that I do, um, we keep the the numbers at 15, you know, no more than 15 people. Um because right. you know it's a it's a ghost hunting tour and people are paying you know for an experience, um, which yeah. you know I wish people wouldn't come in expecting things to happen, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah, but, and yeah. and that's true. I mean, I think that's with a lot of um, investigations, and I think I blame part of that on on TV. I blame a good portion oh, yeah. of it on TV because. They don't, that's what one of my, that's what Savannah and I was talking about the other day um, from Underground Paranormal. Um, that's stuff that she's working on for her classes right now because she has to do a presentation. But they don't, they don't see the behind the scenes of what we do. They don't see the EVPs, the three and four and five hours worth of recordings that we have to listen to to get that evidence or the countless hours. I'll, I'll give an example. When we were investigating the other day, a friend of mine, and not too much, the first time we investigated around our town, um, because I finally got permission to be allowed to do that after I can't tell you how many years, they finally said yes, because the town of Urbana has its own little ordinances. Like, you can't just walk out there with paranormal equipment. You just, they, they, they don't want that. Um, so last week when um, Marjorie and I went out there to do some investigating, uh, the first night we went, it was very active in one spot. The second time we went, it wasn't active. But when we moved to a different location within the town, you know, it was active, it was active right away. But the first location, you just sat and sat and sat. And, you know, TV shows it happening all the time just like that, and, it, and it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a, a quick story. So this past um, Saturday night, I actually did a um, public investigation of uh, Scotchtown and Hanover Tavern, um, mm -hmm. Hanover County, uh, which was hosted by Transcend and RTO Paranormal. And, you know, Scotchtown was great. I love Scotchtown. You know, we, we got some pretty interesting EVPs and, like, spear box chatter. Um, Hanover Tavern didn't really have a whole lot happen. Uh, mm -hmm. Various things here and there, which I was kind of like, okay. 
And then we got over to the Old Stone Jail, which was right next door to the Hanover Courthouse. Um, my group and I were up at, uh, at the top of the jail, and I felt this, like, really heavy energy. And I was like, okay, you know, I don't want any part of that. Um, we went in the sheriff's office, sat down, started doing uh, Estes method. It's a thing down for me. Everybody wants me to do it. And I plugged in, and I started having the group ask me questions. And um, a few minutes in, I felt this energy rush up on me, and I started laughing like a maniac uncontrollably. I mean, there was nothing <laughs> I could do. And I was just like, what the world is going on? And, you know, I started, like, putting my hand in front of me, like, all right, back off, back off. You know, in my head, I was telling them, go away. I, I know you like me, but go away. And <laughs> we finished out the session, and one of the investigators from Transcend Paranormal was like, why the hell were you laughing like a maniac? <laughs> I said, I, I assure you, it's not anything I heard. Uh, I felt, you know, somebody come up on me, and their energy started forcing me to laugh. She said, you sounded like a psychopath. And I was like, I felt like one. And I kid you not, it was like a split second later, I felt that same thing. Somebody rushed up on me and I started, I was like, I, had, I doubled over and like forced up this like deep guttural kind of psychotic laugh and I couldn't stop. And I like, I, I had no control over it. I couldn't talk. I got, I couldn't do anything, and um, they all started. They were like, all right, who's doing that to him? You need to leave him alone. You know, back off, back off. And one of the guys said, um, you know, you don't want us here, do you? And I, like, involuntarily started nodding my head yes, and then out of my mouth came yes. And I, I oh, wow. I, yeah, I grabbed a hold of the situation. I was like, guys, I went outside to get some air. I don't know who this is or what they want, but they're not taking control of me. And they're like, yeah, do that, do that. And I was like, uh, I said, stay here and leave me alone. And I walked outside. And I, when I got outside, I, like, I felt that energy still on me. I lost like, like a, you know, a nut job for 10 minutes looking up at the gym. Right. And I went back in and... Like an investigator from RTO came down. He was like, "Dude, you all right?" And I was like, "Yeah, I think so." I'm gonna try to go back up. And as soon as I touched foot on the staircase, I like I felt the energy at the top of the stairs. And he was like looking around the corner at me, and then I started laughing uncontrollably. Like I had no control. And uh, I went back out with the guy from RTO. We talked, and I I could feel the energy looking at me through the windows. And every time I looked back at the windows, I could feel it staring at me, and I started laughing maniacally. Um, finally, got it together, went back in, got up the stairs. As soon as I got to the door of the sheriff's office, I felt him in the back of the room staring at me, and I started laughing. And, and uh, one of the girls from Transcend was like, oh, God, no, 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 just, just go back out, go back out. And, uh, oh wow! My group, my group was so scared. Like they were like, "Nope, we're out." I mean, everybody left except the experienced investigators. I mean, they came for an experience. All I can say is they got one. Um, something latched onto me, and mm -hmm. I, uh, 
at the end of the night, I, you know, one of the girls from Transcend um, came and cleansed my aura. And she was like, all right, you should start feeling better. And, like, the whole time she was cleansing my aura, I, like, I was laughing still. And then finally it stopped. Um, and I was talking with some two of my friends from Spirit Guides Paranormal. And uh, they were like, you know, why don't we kind of look in on you and see if you, you've got any attachments, just to be safe. And uh, right. 30 minutes later, they were like, okay, uh, you had two attachments. Um, one of them was a total psychopath, and the other one was just an a-hole. But you should start feeling a lot better. And I can honestly say I, I have been. So, like, significantly. You just yeah, that's, you that's never know. wild. No, you don't. Yeah. You really don't. I mean, I didn't know. I was carrying around two attachments. I think it was two or three of them that Keith um, picked up on. You know, and you don't, the only reason why I started to recognize some things about it was because there are things that I do daily. Reiki is one of them. I do energy work every single solitary day. Well, I was starting to lose my desire to do that. Um, and so I knew something was wrong because I, I live energy work. I breathe it. So when I didn't have a desire to do it, I'm like, mm, you know, something's just not feeling right with me. And I just felt that heavy weight on my back. And as soon as he did his removal of whatever those were, all that weight just lifted up. And then I got started getting back into my Reiki, my, you know, my Oracle cards, different things like that, that I just had lost the desire to do. And I don't know yeah. where I picked those up at. I mean, I go to, you you can cleanse all you want to. You can say your prayers, surround yourself in white light. You can do all that stuff that, you know, I mean, if it's strong enough, it's going to attach itself onto you. And sometimes you are able to pick stuff up like that. And sometimes you, you're not. So now I have him kind of, him and Teresa Sayers, she's off a crossroads. I kind of have them. Um, look in, you know, on my on my aura because I see mine myself every day, just like you see yourself every day. So I need somebody else to look mm -hmm. over me and say, okay, you know, let's remove this. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. To know my own. <laughs> yeah, and you just don't know unless you have somebody else check in on you. And I can honestly yeah. say that's how it was for me, you know. Uh, but I, yeah. I hadn't been really feeling like myself the past couple of months and since this has transpired I'm like wow who would have thought um, because I honestly had no clue I was just like man I must have like picked up a bug or something um, but yeah yeah it's just like there's and no I'm telling you certainty I, I yeah I mean I had I mean I think my dizziness is bad now it was it was dizzy times 10 because I got such a heaviness and it, and it would start in my head and work its way all the way down to my feet. And it would sit there mm -hmm. for a little bit, then it would work its way all the way back up and then leave. It was just very, very strange. And it, I mean, it was awful. And once he, once he did what he needed to do, that stopped. And I was so yeah. grateful for it because I didn't, you know, I didn't know in the last known place I was between when that when stuff like that happened was Pamplin Park, and then I had done one more old house woods investigation, 
you know, not saying it came from there, but those were the very two last investigations I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you yeah, always no. want somebody to check you out. You know, that's what I have learned in this in this field, and you can be the best of the best, you know, um, and that still doesn't mean that you don't have an attachment with you. Yep. Exactly right. You know. Yeah, so, 100%. I yeah. Know. You know, it doesn't mean it can't, won't attach itself to you, and, you know, I think sometimes people need to be a little bit more observant of, their behavior and not feeling like themselves because when you start doing things like that are not where you're not feeling good, but also like with me out of the ordinary, yeah, that's when I know, okay, what, what, I mean, Dennis did a um, blessing over me um, and that helped out a lot too. I mean, I'm, I'm human just like everybody else is out there. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, go in to an investigation, you know, with the greatest attitude in the world and, you know, be respectful and delightful to the spirits. But, I mean, at the end of the night, if they're intelligent enough and, you know, they have the willpower, they can latch on and hit your eye. And you yeah. could very well be oblivious to it. And, That's you know, right. I, I mean, and you don't even have to necessarily be investigating either. You know, you can pick That's, up you're spiritual right. attachments anywhere. You're absolutely so, right about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere. I, mean, I'm I know sorry. people. That... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh no, no. I was just going to say, you know, I'm surprised I don't pick up a bunch of them from Williamsburg as much as I spend time on the streets there. You know, investigating and doing tours. I, you know, I'm just like, I'm surprised I don't have a whole house full of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they're just like, oh, okay, that's Denny. He's just coming to investigate tonight, y'all. Let's just do our little thing. And, you know, yeah. we'll just stay here. Yeah. <laughs> We're well, so used to why, seeing them. That's why, I, yeah, I, I joke with tour groups. I'm like, look, some of these houses, you know, it, it's like I turn on Spirit Box, you know, you're going to hear them calling my name because they knew who I am. You know, they... Some of them call me call me friend um, because they know I come here night after night after night, you know, talking about the history and yeah. stuff. They're like, eh, Denny's cool. We don't mind Denny. No big deal. Yeah. Every once in a while, I get, and, and, I get and, a cheeky booger, though, who, you know, wants to hurl slanders at me. And I'm like, oh, go right back inside. I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're – um, I could see where they would – call you friend and stuff like that if they're used to you being there. But you're very soft-spoken and a gentle soul to me. I mean, that's what I, when I first met you in person, that was, I picked up on that immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, whereas I get called bitch quite often when I, you know, I'm doing my stuff. I bet you if I went out there, they would probably say, oh, she's such a bitch. You know, I get the bad words, the really bad ones, slut, (laughs) you know, the terrible words. I mean, the cussers, even, you know, going out um, last week in town, uh, the amount of FUs, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, really? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the only one that's yeah. really nice to me is the one at Old House Woods that calls me Blondie, and that's about it. <laughs> I'm just not yes, love. I hear you. Right, right. I um... so. I've been coming across an interesting character 
recently at the the public jail in Williamsburg, um, whom I'm I'm starting to think is a, a protector of sorts. Um, I had a lady on a tour one night who said she caught a glimpse of him. She said, tall, dark-skinned man covered in scars. And I thought, huh, interesting. Uh, Sounds kind of ominous, but um, whenever we're investigating there, he always seemed to come out and communicate with us. And I've noticed within the past couple of weeks, he's been like kind of commandeering like spirit box sessions and you know EVP sessions and he's speaking on behalf of other spirits that are there so I'm I'm trying to figure out who he is specifically and you know why he's kind of running the show uh, so to speak Uh, because like I think um, your friend Marjorie that was watching the live stream was talking about Peter Pelham was sitting on the uh, staircase next to me, and he was the last jailkeeper at the public jail. He was actually the most famous of them all because uh, he was, you know, known for being a, a nice and very generous jailkeeper. But um, this this entity who's kind of speaking on his his behalf won't let him speak to me. He's like, he's listening. Talk to him. And I'm like, hmm, okay, are you his bodyguard, uh, guardian angel? I mean, who are you to him? But he won't give me a name. Uh, he won't tell me his affiliation, but maybe that will all come in due time. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, Marjorie's fun to investigate with. They, um, she's, really, she's really good at picking up, picking up stuff, but she don't um, – you know, she don't put it out there a lot, but she's really good. I've investigated with Marjorie a couple of times, and um, she, you and her would get along, hit it off really well, because she probably knows just about as much history. Y'all two are history buffs. <laughs> I mean, she. I mean, oh, she just she knows Williamsburg in that area, particularly where you're at, because she did. You know, where she was out there for years. But she just knows that place, that whole place, inside and out, like the back of her hand. Yeah. yeah so y'all can probably compare notes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You yeah. know. So hopefully, um, if I if I come out there, maybe she'll come with me because I know you know, like I said, and I hope she don't get upset for me saying saying it because she keeps she she keeps stuff on the down low. But the last couple times we went out there. It like I said, it was sold out, and I'm just like, really? Because yeah. I mean, we can go, and I think there's another group there, and I don't know if that's your group or not. I'm not sure, but there's another group of people there, and they just kind of do like because you wasn't in this one. It was they just kind of like do historical, you know, and kind of tell stories. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how many places are out there. I know that there's, I think there's another tour group too, isn't there? It's not just you. Isn't there another one out there too? Oh, there, there are quite, quite a few different groups. Yeah. I work for the original ghost tour, um, which is Virginia's oldest ghost tour company. Um, then we've got us ghost adventures, um, 
you've got the ghost photographer. Um, let's see, there's yeah. Axe Wild Ghost Tours. I mean, there's some Colonial Williamsburg has their own tour called Haunted Williamsburg. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure. I just knew that. I mean, I can go and do that part anytime. I I know that it was more, mostly like ghost stories, but you know, we could. Yeah. The other one was just sold out, and I think that was the actual run the equipment type that right. that was sell so, that was sold out. Yeah. Yeah. So my group, we actually offer several different types of tours. You know, where you can come here. You know family-friendly ghost stories and learn, you know, about the history of certain sites. Um, then, like, we do, like, a haunted river cruise of Jamestown Island. Um, then, you know, we've got, like, a murder tour in the works uh, where you can hear, like, true crime stories of Williamsburg. And then, you know, we have um, we have a tour that I created called Beyond the Shadows of Williamsburg where you can learn, you know, about the spookier side of, historical things that have happened in the area that they don't talk about during the day and then kind of get to experience some ghost hunting equipment, but not like have a full on investigation or anything. And then you have um, the other tour I created called the extreme ghost where you're actually paranormally investigating, uh, you know, some of the most notoriously haunted sites in the city for three hours. Um, which seems like a lot, but it goes by really fast, especially when you have a Oh, fly. heck, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. time flies. I mean, me and Marjorie went out um, last week. We're looking at the clock. It was like, I think it was like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. We look, we, you know, we're doing our thing. We look up at the clock. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, 2.30. I'm like, oh, my God, we got to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, one minute you're looking down at your clock and it's all nice and early, and then you look again and you're like, oh, my God, it's a crack of dawn. <laughs> Because when you uh, yep. get when you get good evidence, you don't want to leave. Your adrenaline is up, and then when you're done, you know, like in our case, we we came home, and I and she said the same thing I did. We really should have debriefed each other because we were just so excited with what we got that it was kind of hard to go home and try to go to sleep over it because we were excited. Oh sure, yeah, I know that feeling yeah. all too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get yeah. all excited and you're oh, I can't sleep now. So then you're up there trying yeah. to make a cup of coffee at O Dark Thirty because you can't go to sleep because you're happy. you're excited with the equip you know, the, the research that you got. So mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're going over E V P and looking at photos and I mean, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's probably gonna kill me from coughing so much, but she'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. But yeah, yeah. When I get back, I'll um, I'll schedule that, you know, with you and and you know, we'll just. I think it's just really interesting and cool that you're you're out there doing that. I yeah, got yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a it's a good time, you know. I really I've been doing this for six years now, you know. I really and thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, I. Oh, I bet. And and see, when I when I go to Williamsburg, even though I live in the town of her, you know, out well, a little bit outside of Urbana, it's still considered out Urbana, but it's like you're, 
back in time. So when I go to Duke of Gloucester Street or, you know, in that area, you just feel like you're just back in time. And, you know, those, yeah. it's, it's almost like you've already lived there. Or at least when I go there, I feel like I live there. I'm so drawn to it. And I've been drawn to that area my entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get, I get you know. that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When you when we get done with the show, we got about seven minutes, so we're good on timing. But Ashley um, McGowan, if you don't mind, if you if you're able to post your link, like in the comments, maybe mm-hmm. if it's able to post in there, she's interested in the extreme tour. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I can I can post that. We do that um, every Friday and Saturday night from 9:30 p.m. to 12:30 p.m. Uh, I can definitely okay. post the link. Um, tickets are $23. Got that, Ash. Well $23. Friday, Saturday. Yep, and they sell out fast. But, yeah, post the link. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they do sell out fast. I mean, they do. I, that's the one Marjorie and I wanted to go on. If I remember correctly, and it was sold out, and we were like, damn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it. it sells out like hotcakes. Um, but, you know, it, it depends on what time of the year and how many people are in town and all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, know, well, it was, a, it was a nice night that we went. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was oh, a really yeah. nice evening. Yeah. We didn't even want to go home. Yeah. I think we stayed out there until 1, 1.30. Even though we finished the little one tour, we just, we just stayed out there. We just had... No, you know, it was one of those nights where when you have a breezy night and it's a summer night, but it's nice and breezy, and you just want to stay outside, and that's where that's the night that we went. So we okay. had a good time, yeah. though. Yeah. Hey, as long as you have a good time, that's all that matters. Yeah. So, Yeah. you know, but, um, I, yeah. I was just thinking of, um, do you recall that picture I showed you that I, I when we were at Old House Woods of uh, the um, – the 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 spirit dog at um, Bruton Parish Church. Yes. So, I don't know if I I told you the whole story behind that, um, but I I did some digging and because I I was standing out front of that cemetery after I finished the tour one night and I felt like I was being watched, so I just turned around with my cell phone real quick and. I snapped three photos uh, of the, the cemetery gate, and I went back and looked, and in the very first photo, there was that dog peeking at me through the gate. And I went, wow, I mean, there's no to die in it. And I could even tell the breed, which was uh, an American Eskimo. Um, my girlfriend and I uh, used to have one. Um, unfortunately, she passed away, but... I took that and I said, all right, and I went to a buddy of mine, he and I were talking about it. He said, well, you know, Reverend Goodwin, when he was rector of the church, he actually had an American Eskimo. I said, shut the front door. And uh, <laughs> he sent me a, a picture of Goodwin and the dog together. And I said, that's, that's the dog I saw that night. Uh, apparently, Goodwin and the dog are buried under the floors of the church. Uh, which I went, oh my well, goodness. there you go. Makes sense. So he and the dog are taking late night walks together. Um, oh, my but gosh. I've actually, yeah, I've been um, talking with the the spirits there. 
And um, one night, I actually got the dog, whose name is Alaska, on Spirit Box barking. And the spirits were like, he's right at the gate. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I'm like, I went oh, up to the wow. gate. And I, was like, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to pet him. They, they said, okay. And I stuck my hand in the gate. And, like, my hand went ice cold. And I was like, I felt what I can only describe as, you know, a, a dog trying to interact with my hand. And I just said, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, I just love the idea that Reverend Goodwin and his dog are, you know, out there taking late night walks together, just like old times. It's sweet. It's sweet. Yeah. I can appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. That is, that's really cool. And no, that's good that you got that, I, that, type, that type of evidence, too, you know, I mean, to back up, you know, everything that you're saying. That's awesome. And I mean, Goodwin, Goodwin was such an interesting guy. He always talked about ghosts in his sermons, you know, and whenever he talked to people. And um, I remember a, a reporter came down from the Baltimore Sun shortly before his death to visit Williamsburg and interview him. And he was like, you know, do you really believe in all this ghost stuff? And, you know, Goodwin kind of laughed. He said, Mr., I wouldn't give a hoot for anybody who doesn't believe in ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that is a guy I could have easily gotten along with. Yeah, yeah, that is so cool, you know, that – um, it's funny how people did stuff in their lifetime, and it's almost like they still do the same things even after in the afterlife. That's wild. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, why not? What else do you have to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've walked into a couple of places where um, they're still doing their job. You know, there was there's one particular place we have where a person was um, shot up. About too far from here, and they were in their they were doing their job when they got shot, but they're still in that particular area or in that particular place doing their job as if they're still on their job. Oh yeah, it's wild. And I I I actually I'm showing them um, to you. the original owner of the Prentice store uh, in Colonial Ranger, Mr. William Prentice, who built the place in mm-hmm. 1739. He's still there working yeah. in the afterlife. And, you know, if you come there and you kick the guy off, uh, he shows up. <laughs> he That's did, wild. Not a happy camper. Oh, yeah. I, I had him show up on a tour one night. Like I was with my uh, back against the wall standing under what is an office window. And one of the kids in my group tried provoking him. A few seconds later, light came on in the window, and there was a guy sitting there in a chair and I had 45 people they all saw it and I turned around and I went okay and said hey buddy I'm Denny I work for Colonial Williamsburg who are you and he got up he looked at me I saw an 18th century guy um, looked not too terribly much older than myself he leaned in looked at me real close the light blinked off he wasn't there and it was all over and done with Oh, wow. But it's, yeah, um, what's cool, though, somebody actually captured a picture of him before he got up and disappeared. So, oh, yeah. wow. Um, yeah, I I always 
make it a point uh, to share that picture, you know, at the end of tours. If I ever have the the chance to tell the story, just because it, it I mean, it's evidence of what happened that night. Oh wow! Yeah, that is wild, <laughs> and it's crazy. It's particularly crazy because there was a black curtain nailed to that window, and it's been that way for over thirty years. That is wild. Yeah, yeah. I, I look yeah. forward to um, going, you know, like I said, when I get back, coming out with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, we'll have a good be time. Cool. Yeah, I think we will. We'll see what we can, you know, accomplish or see what, what comes up, you know. But I that's have to thing. go off the air because I've got Ryan's show that's getting ready to start. Um, yep. you know, <laughs> so I was like, okay. you can do like certain parts. We're going to have to do another part at some point here. Just let me know. I, I'm, I'm always here. I, I will. I will. I will let you know. And I do appreciate you taking your time out to come on my show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime, really. Yes. Yes. And I will um, contact you when I get back in the area. Okay. Sounds good. Just All right. Let me know. Well, I will, and thank you. You are very welcome. Take care. All right. You too. Good night. Good night. Tonight on the Freaking Awesome Show, we're talking all about candies and salt drinks. Let's do this.
Hello, all you freaks out there. This is Ryan, and welcome to the freaking awesome show. Angie is working on something camp-related at the moment, but she is here, and she will be joining us tonight. Um, I figured I'd step away from the paranormal, do something a little different. Um, I was had a little, little bit of a sweet tooth today, and I'll think, you know what? I love learning the stories behind, like, like these products we use, like there is a show on History Channel called "The Food That Food That Built America." It talks all about the the stories behind like Heinz ketchup, uh, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Domino's, and like how they came to be and like the beginnings of them. And it, it, I thought it'd be cool to to talk about like maybe some weird stories behind our soft, the soft drinks that we drink and the candies that we eat and stuff like that. So I went ahead and looked up a few articles about um, about that. Oh, I always found that very interesting. Um, but before we get uh, into all that, I talk to you about what's going on with us here at Camp Hanover. We are in. Uh, let's see. I think. The fifth year of being here in no, actually no, it's probably we've already been here for like a month and a half. No, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 you know, I, I lose track of how long I've been here. <sighs> Feels like it never ends, but it's fun sometimes. We had a uh, we had a cookout the other night. We actually cooked on the campfire. We made uh, chicken, and um, Angie made these this squash and zucchini. I mean, she cut it up, put butter on it, and garlic, salt, onion salt, and maybe some regular salt on there. Cooked, put it in a pan, cooked it on a fire. And it's like the best zucchini and squash I've ever had in my life. I, you know, if zucchini and squash could taste like that all the time, I eat it all the time, but then I'd have to build a fire every time I eat zucchini and squash, and that's just not um, very practical. Having to walk around with firewood all the time and having a lot of fire, but if I could do that, I would. I just probably too lazy to do that, anyways. Um, the chicken was good, a little dark, but. Uh, the seasoning, the marinade was really good. It was a, it was a um, Italian dressing with um, Texas peat, garlic salt, and onion salt. Um, I, think she, I think she let it marinate for like three hours, so it was, it was pretty good. It was, it was good. It was better than the, the last time we cooked on the fire. We made hobo packs, and that's just long. It's just a long process. To make get it, you got to cut up all the vegetables and 
and when I made it, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I'd made hippo packs before when I went camping as a, you know, a teenager or whatever, and it was fine. But I think I think I put the chicken on, I put the chicken on top of the hobo pack. But I should have put it on the bottom because it didn't cook. Then I ended up having to put it back in the fire. And by the time I actually ate it, I wasn't hungry anymore. It just wasn't a, wasn't a good experience. But this the cooking outside this weekend was was fun. We've got um, if you missed it, we had Holly Mullins on the show on Sunday, and something happened with the. Uh, with the audio, I noticed like halfway through the show, I was hearing double. So when Holly would talk, it was like there are two Hollies speaking simultaneously, and I was like, well, maybe it's just the phone; it, it won't show up on the on the radio show. Well, I downloaded it on iTunes, and it did show up. So I'm not sure if it was a blog talk thing or or, or an us thing, but she came on to talk about. The event this weekend at the cabin on 360. We are having her come out. We're gonna, she's going to come out, and uh, we're going to have her do a seance inside the cabin. We did this last year, and it was it was crazy. A lot of a lot of cool stuff happened. Um, as she was talking about on Sunday, during the last session, they had to break the circle because one of the spirits was coming through and telling her that someone needed help in the brick house, the rancher next door. And, and she came outside. I was sitting on the front porch talking to a friend of mine, she comes outside and says, you know, there's something going on. You need to go next door. So I'm like, all right. So I go next door, and lo and behold, there was some person, somebody who needed help. So, you know, it's it's a very cool experience to come to uh, go out there and experience something like that. Energy is, is, is off the charts, she'll be, and she'll be there all day Saturday doing readings at the cabin. Um, 30 bucks, you can come over. If you're in the area, obviously, if you live in, like, Wisconsin or some shit, you're not going to want to go out there. But um, if you're in the area, come out and out. You know, you want to get a reading. She's very good at what she does. Um, and this cabin is very active. You know, she lives in Kentucky. It's, like, eight or nine hours away. I don't think she would drive that far for a place that wasn't active. So um, it's uh, it's a great location. It's going to be a great time. A lot of cool people are going to be there. We've got the folks from Commonwealth Researchers of, Researchers of the Paranormal, which I'm a part of, I, full disclosure, they're going to be the ones doing the, the investigating, um, leading the teams and stuff. So they're going to be, it's going to, they're going to be a lot of, going to be out there, and they're very, very good team, um, very cool people. Uh, we have Hallie O'Dell and Katrina Gagnon from uh, the Orion Effect, uh, from the Rift, Rift Radio Network, are going to be out there as well. Um, Helping us out, and very appreciative for for them to uh, to them for coming out and helping us out with this event. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Take a sip out of talking about soft drinks here. I'm going to take a drink out of my cherry Coca Cola here. <sighs> Love me some cherry Coke. So that's that's about that's about it for all the. News, there's really not much going on, you know. It's the same thing, thing every day. Get up, take care of RJ, go to lunch, go to breakfast. Well, reverse order, breakfast, lunch, and then dinner. Put RJ to bed. <sighs> we went to uh, Bush Gardens last week. Well, let me tell you about this. Well, I swear I'll go into the stories about the candy. Went to, went to Bush Gardens with my sister, my daughter, Rihanna, our, our adoptive daughter, Kristen, and RJ and my two nephews. 
We go to Busch Gardens, have a good time. I ride like I rode Alpengeist with my sister, and that that is the ride in in Busch Gardens. It's like a like a let's be like a a possessed ski lift type ride. So it was it was fun. All right, we go home, and my car breaks down on the way home. I'm like, my battery, my the electrical system is completely shut off. I'm on 60 or 295 going home. There's no lights on the dashboard at all. I'm freaking out. I'm like, holy crap. Do I have any control of my car? If I, because I was afraid, you know, if you alternator dies, you push the brakes at all, it, it's completely, your car completely, completely cuts off. So I'm going on 295. I'm afraid to hit the brakes. So I'm like, what happens if my car cuts off? So I keep going. I finally get to the exit and I, uh, I, I hit the brakes and I, and I'm, Heading towards, I know there's a shopping center I can pull off, but my car starts shaking and stuff. I'm like, oh crap! So I'm trying to get over. And I'm like, and I can't turn my signals on. I mean, I was trying to probably cut a few people off. Finally, I'm able to get into the uh, into the parking lot and getting a tow over to the shop. And everything was fine. There was a a, a belt that came off, and uh, ended up getting fixed, and everything was fine. It was just a hair raising experience trying to get my car off the highway to the shopping center. So that's about as exciting as my weekend has been besides the precise cooking on the fire, which was, which was fun. Um, that's what it, we have July 31st, the, the, the cabin of Holly and then August 7th, 14th, uh, Eric Knapp and Stephen Hutnicks are coming out to the cabin for event, for an event, but they're an event, event is only, um, well, 15 people. 15 is a very small, intimate gathering of paranormal investigators, um, which is cool because you get to you get the you get to you know have more of a one-on-one type thing with the investigators. Um, that's what's cool about what we do at the cabin. We don't do huge groups. We try to keep our groups kind of small. We don't really try to, you know do giant groups because we like to have it like small intimate groups, you know, but all right. So tonight we're talking about candy. That's what I want to talk about tonight. It's candies and soft drinks, learning the stories, maybe a few weird, weird stories about the different candies you enjoy. Um, I found a few articles I'm going to read. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to understand what I'm saying. You know, sometimes I talk too fast, but I'll do my best to, uh, to read these to you. And I got Angel will be here shortly. She's, like I said, she's attending to some camp business right now, and uh, she'll get here when she can. So, so the first one is actually off a, a website called This Verse. It was published in Feb- on February 9, 2016. It's uh, entitled 10 Strange Stories and Origins of Our Favorite Candies. Number one, number 10, go 10, 10 through 10 through one, all right? Number 10, salt water taffy was probably named as a joke. Although nobody knows who made it first, saltwater taffy got its start either on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, New Jersey, or at Midwestern County Fairs in the 19th century. Taffy is made with sugar, salt, flavorings, corn, syrup, and other ingredients that vary between recipes. It is then pulled and molded to aerate the mixture so that it becomes soft and chewy. Regardless of its name, the salt, soft taffy does not have salt water in it. 
although some brands do add extra salt. According to rumor, Solar Taffy got his name from candy maker David Bradley. During an 1883 storm, the taffy stock became soaked with salt water from the Atlantic Ocean. But even though his store was flooded, customers still came in to ask for his taffy. He jokingly called it saltwater taffy, and the name stuck. In 1923, John Edmiston trademarked the name and tried to get a cut of the profits from anyone selling a saltwater taffy. But the Supreme Court decided that the name had already been used too often for candy and ruled against him. As a result, Edmiston did not receive any royalties. The term became common again and is now the accepted way to market nearly any taffy, salty or not. Oh. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of saltwater taffy at all. Number nine, cotton candy was promoted by tent- dentists. Originally, dairy floss, cotton candy, has gone by many monikers such as candy floss or sponge sugar. John C. Wharton and William J. Morrison patented their version of a cotton candy machine in 1889. The names introduced the machine in their new cotton candy concoction at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. They sold nearly 70,000 boxes of candy at that fair. As cotton candy is made entirely from caramelized sugar, most people realize that such a sweet overload will probably send you to a dentist sooner rather than later. Interestingly, Morrison was a dentist. To be fair, he was also a lawyer, an author, and a civic leader. But still, a dentist creating cotton candy has to erase my eyebrows. In 1900, cotton candy was introduced to the, to the Ringling Brothers by Thomas Patton, who had invented a more modern version of the cotton candy machine. Even later, Joseph LaSalle, Another dentist created another version of the machine that he never officially patented. He did, however, coin the name Cotton Candy. As to why more than one dentist had a hand in the rise of Cotton Candy's popularity, we can only guess. But it has to do with the consequential rise of cavities. 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 Yeah. I had a hard time with that last word. That's kind of crazy that the Cotton Candy was invented by a dentist. Uh, maybe it's like, well, if I got to drum up some business, maybe make some candy so, so the kids will come to me for when their cavities come. But I love, God, I love cotton candy. Love me some cotton candy. But I don't like, I don't like the flavored cotton candy. Well, I mean, it's all flavored. But like the fruity flavored cotton candy, I like the, the original pink cotton candy. Yes, give that to me any other week. Uh, I don't like the raspberry. Or, and I've tried different cotton candies. I, I think I bought like bacon flavored cotton candy. I've tried Dr. Pepper flavored cotton candy. Um I think unicorn poop flavored cotton I don't know, I don't, I don't know but yeah. It, regular cotton candy, that's what's so that's all I need. Make me make me want to go to a fair and get some cotton candy and a funnel cake. Pop box caused urban legend and widespread panic. I'm pretty sure everyone knows this one. Uh, the Fizz and Candies Pop Rocks were developed in 1956 by General Foods Research S- scientist William A. Mitchell. Originally sold for 15 cents a packet in the early 1970s, they came in orange, cherry, and grape flavors. Pop Rocks are small, crystallized pieces of sugar with air pockets of carbonation that pop and crackle when the candy melts in your mouth or in water. This popping sound, sound led to an urban legend. As early as 1970, 1979, there were rumors about a child who had exploded after 
eating Pop Rocks with soda. At one point, the Food and Drug Administration even set up a hotline to field any questions from parents concerned about their child eating the candy. After a large marketing effort to combat the rumors that were gripping the imagination of the public, Pop Rocks eventually disappeared from market shelves in 1983. They have since popped back up and had a resurgence in popularity. But the crazy rumors still linger and were even featured on Mythbusters. Don't worry about busting your gut, though. The most that Pop Rocks and soda will do to your stomach is to make it upset. That's crazy. Cause I remember hearing, that, hearing that, that rumor. If you eat a Pop Rocks and drink soda at the same time, you, you will explode, which, you know, Being kids, we, we believe stupid things, but I, uh, I definitely remember that that uh, that rumor. I'm not sure if I actually tried it or not. Obviously, if I did, I'm still here, you know. So, but yeah, that was definitely a big rumor when I was growing up. I can't believe they took the pop box off the shelf. So I didn't realize that they took it off the shelf because they're they were so scared. I mean, just it's just say, look, it's just it's not true. I guess it's harder to spread news now, or back then it is now, because they, they obviously didn't have the internet. Um, they could have put like a flyer out, but not everyone's going to read the flyer. Um, so I guess you know being able to spread news is good for stuff like this. We can say, this, hey, this isn't really happened, but it's bad for other things. Um, but yeah, I do remember the, the whole Pop Rocks. Uh, and you know, exploding your stomach thing, and that would be the that'd be terrible. Imagine dying like that. How did little Billy die? Oh, he'd eat pop rocks and just and soda. His freaking stomach exploded. Not the best way to go out. Good thing it's not true. Lollipops have strange name origins. Ooh, strange name origins. I think it's fun just to say the word lollipop. I just It's a fun word to say, lollipop. Since ancient times, candies and sugary sweets have often been put on the ends of sticks for eating. It became popular in the 17th century to enjoy boiled sugar treats that are pressed into sticks, onto sticks to eat. This treat was soft candy rather than hard, but it was one of the forerunners of the modern lollipop. In the 20th, 20th century, the owner of McAveney, McAveney Candy Company often brought home for his children the leftover sticks used to stir batches of candy. He began selling these sticks in 1908, which coincided with the invention of the first automated machine that put sticks in hard candy. Daniel Bourne, the inventor of the candy machine, was even awarded a key to the city of San Francisco for his invention. In 1908, George Smith began marketing the modern version of a lollipop through his confection company, Bradley Smith company. He coined the term lollipop in 1931 after a famous racehorse of the time called Lollipop. Well, shit. Well, there you go. Lollipop was named after a racehorse. When lollipops stopped being produced during the Great Depression, the name fell into public domain. The name also meant something like tongue slapper because lolly was old English for English slang for tongue and pop meant to slap. Some linguists even have even linked the name to the Roman phrase lollifaba, red apple, supposedly referred to, 
to their traditional Roman toffee apple treat. So the famous name originates from a horse or in the English slang or ancient Rome, or it could be made up. However, whatever the truth is a unique way of looking at lollipops. Well, I really don't want to say about that. I mean, it's cool. It's really, it's, it's cool. I, I had no idea that it was named after a horse. Or it could be named after the Roman Roman phrase lollifaba, red apple. Although, I could see that for a candied apple because that's on a stick. Not sure what it has to do with a lollipop. But lollifaba, you know, it sounds like a lollipop, but most lollipops don't really taste like apples. They have like a cherry or an orange, lime flavor. I never really had an apple lollipop. I'm not saying they don't exist. I just don't think, I don't know, that doesn't really follow unless you go by the, like you say, go by the name or the way it sounds. Um, or, or the whole English slang. Or maybe it's an old, like I said, maybe it's like an old phrase. A slap your tongue. Tongue slapper. Because mm. you lick it. It's a tongue slap. You slap it, slap it with your tongue. Mm. Yeah, okay. Tap slum tongue slapper. That's 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 different. That's new. I uh so I keep this PG, so I'm gonna keep that to myself, but tongue slapper. Mm. Snickers also has a strange name origins. Also has strange names origins. Mm. Get that out. The Snickers bar has an interesting store behind its name as well. Although the Snickers bar was not the first first peanut caramel and nougat candy. It was one of the most popular and most enduring of its time. Frank and Ethel Mars, founders of Mars, Inc., had great success with the Milky Way and were open to developing new candies. After three years of development, the Snickers bar was released in 1930. Just months before the release of their new candy bar, Ethel's favorite horse, Snickers, died. This was a hard loss for her, and and she adored her horse. So she and her husband named the new candy bar Snickers in the horse's honor. Interestingly, the farm where Snickers had lived was called the Milky Way Farm, just like their other candy, famous candy bar. Regardless of this named theme, Snickers candy bars live on as one of the best-selling candies in the world. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Snickers was named after the horse, which is awesome. Then Snickers, the horse, lived on the Milky Way Farm. So whenever, whenever I go to the candy store and I see a Snickers, or see a Milky Way bar, I'll have that story. I remember that story. Like, oh, this is so cool. Milky Way Farm, Snickers the Horse. Very cool. Circus Peanuts inspired Lucky Charms. Fondly remembered as one of the original penny candies, Circus Peanuts have been around since since the 1800s. Banana-flavored marshmallows are notorious for their love-it-or-hate-it reputation. Maybe that's why no one has admitted to inventing them. Much less try to brand them. So we, since we don't know who the creator is, we also have an, I no idea why these peanut chip candies have a banana flavor. Either way, these little gum stickers are the reason why we have marshmallow cereals. General Mills product developer John Houlihan found that the mixture of Cheerios and the bits, cut bits of circuit peanuts was good enough to sell, which led to the, to, to the to the development of the ever-popular Lucky Charms cereal. So maybe, even if you're not fond of Circus Peanuts, you might want to thank whoever made them if you love marshmallows and cereal. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. I do love Lucky Charms. 
I don't I don't love circus peanuts. Although I don't remember ever eating a circus peanut. I don't like marshmallows that much. So you know, wrap that wrap your mind around that. I like marshmallows. I'd like a lot to try but I don't like to I don't like marshmallows. But I guess it's the, the mixture of eating the marshmallows with the oat cereal makes them okay. But I, I'm not the kind of person who will take a bag of marshmallows and start eating them. Or, like, you know, there's, there's, um, there's marshmallow lollipops that were, like, have, like, sugar all over them. I don't eat those. They're too sweet. Not for me. But I'll eat, I'll eat marshmallows and cereal. Although there are some cereals that have marshmallows I don't like, like Frosted Flakes with marshmallows. The marshmallows belong in Lucky Charms. That's about it. Is there any other cereals that have mar- Lucky Charms that, that have marshmallows in them? Uh, Count. Yes, Count Chocula and Frankenberry and all that stuff. The cereals that I grew up with with marshmallows, I will accept because they, they've been part of my life for 40 years. I think years. you're just used to it. Yeah. You know? I tried to frosted flakes with marshmallows. It's just tasted weird. It's like there's something, it's an added it's ingredient that I don't need. used to it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. What about raisin bran with marshmallows? Would you eat that? No, no. I like to pretend I'm being healthy when I when I eat raisin bran, and raisin bran with marshmallows really to kind of takes the uh, takes the, the the illusion of being healthy away. Do you know uh, M and M's? I'm doing weird. You know M and M's lost the color in, in the cancer pantsic in cancer pantsic. <laughs> in a cancer panic. Forrest Mars Sr., son of Frank and Ethel Mars of Mars Inc., was inspired by the candy shell chocolates and military rations to make the famous M&M's candies. Named for Forrest Mars Sr. and Hershey executive William Murray, these candies were patented and put in production in 1941. Eventually, they were only sold to the military, but when the war ended, their popularity continued with civilians. The candies were sold in cardboard tubes, and the original colors were brown, red, violet, yellow, and green. However, in 1979, one of these colors faded from the mix due to FDA test results. The dye, called FDNC Red Number 2, was linked to tumors in female rats in, in a 1971 Russian test. The test was later found to be to have been incorrectly, incorrectly performed. The tested dye wasn't the food color that was used in the M&M's anyways, but the damage had already been done. Mars had to deal with the public that was panicked over the fact, over the possible effects of FDNC number two, used to color several popular foods like soda, hot dogs, ice cream, and candy. The public demanded that the controversial dye be removed. Although M&M's were colored with red number four, Mars replaced rabbit M&M's with orange M&M's to ease public anxiety. In 1987, the red color was reintroduced for M&M's and has been popular ever since. I didn't know they took away the red M&M's. I didn't either. I know they took away the tan m and I miss the tan M&M's. They should bring those back. Yeah, tan M&M's. I don't remember violet M&M's either. Brown. I guess they're brown. I always called them tan. They looked tan to me. I think they replaced blue with tan, or tan with blue, the blue M&Ms. Could, we should have, like, a promotion, like, bring back the tan M&Ms. 
All tan M and M's. All tan M and M's. All tan. Necker wafers, Angie's favorite candy, were brought to the South Pole by the ton. These chalk-like—that's an understatement. Chalk-like candies were invented in 1847 when Oliver Chase made the first lozenge cutter. It became the machine that launched the candy industry, and it wasn't long before its creation. Necker wafers made it famous. The military commissioned a portion, major portion of Mecca wafers production during World War II because the candies were easy to transport without melting. They were also cheap enough to, during the Great Depression to become a popular civilian treat. Famous Arctic explorer, explorer Donald McMillan gave out these candies to native Canadians on his journeys, but that was nothing in comparison to Admiral Richard Byrd. For a two-year journey to the South Pole, Richard Byrd packed 2.5 tons of NECA wafers. That's about 0.5 kilograms, one pound of candy per week for every man on the crew for the entire trip. So picture this. You're in the South Pole. You're freezing. You have ice, like, matted to your beard. Wind howling. You barely see. And all you have to eat are NECA wafers. Inside. Yeah. And just, just throw me, throw me in the water. I become walrus food. I don't. I'd rather just, yeah, you know, feed me to a polar bear. There's no record as to whether the entire amount was consumed, but still, the eight eight original flavors that Admiral Byrd carried with him can be enjoyed today, except for the price. Not much about redneck wafers has changed since they were invented. <sighs> so yeah, if you want, if you want to know what neck wafers taste like, get some like one of those. Those roll laid things. That clicking is driving me. Yeah, I want to use this. I don't know. I think having some difficulties with our our. Well, maybe not difficulties, just some clicking sound coming into our earpods. Airpods here. Double bubble was an accident. Do you remember? Do you remember double bubble? Yes, I do. I wonder what made an accident. Ancient people cheat on bits of tree bark. Tar. The Meyer and Aztecs also chewed on chicle from Sapodilla trees. Then in the 1840s, John Curtis used spruce tree resin to make gum to chew on and later created the first chewing gum factory. It wasn't until 1928, however, that our modern idea of chewing gum was created. Account Walter E. Deemer created it by accident. He liked to experiment in his spare time. After expanding on a failed recipe, he found a way to make chewing gum that that was easier to chew and more resistant to, to breakage and packaging. Interestingly, the iconic pink color was chosen simply because that was, that was the only color available. After a, certain, after a successful trial run, the new gum was packaged and marketed as double bubble gum. Eventually, the packages included comics that featured dub, bub, and the iconic pud. Oh, my God. Remember pud? No. Holy crap, man. Those pud stories, these are iconic. I'm not sure what, why dub and pub, dub and dub and bub are not iconic, but pud is. <laughs> what makes pud so special to make him iconic? You know, I have no idea. I've never heard of dub, pub, or pud, but apparently pud's more popular than dub or bub. Dub or bub. This only helped the popularity of the new chewing gum. At the beginning of World War II, it was even shipped to the military before the scarcity of products forced the factories to stop production. 
These factories reopened soon after the war ended and still cater to our bubble blowing and cud chewing needs today. And I love chewing some cud, don't you? Yeah. Don't you? Chewing the fat. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get, get a good strawberry flavored cud or a grape flavored cud. You know, I love blowing, blowing cud bubbles. It's so much fun. Uh, Pest dispensers were, track, were created to attract smokers. The famous Pez candies were created in Vienna, Austria in 1927. Originally, they didn't have the sweet, fruity flavors we, as we know today. They used to be peppermint flavored. In fact, the names come from Fezermins, the German word for peppermint. Packaged in tins, the candies were popular for a time. They were supposed to be used as an alternative to smoking because their creator, Edward Haas, disliked smoking. In 1949, two new pet dispensers designed by Oscar Uxa were introduced as a way to hygienically share the candies without touching all of them. The dispensers were also designed to draw on smokers. Flicking open the top of a pet dispenser was meant to be like flicking a lighter. For a time, Hobbs even used the, used the slogan, no smoking, pezzing allowed. So whenever you drink, whenever you get a pez, you take a pez dispenser out and you flip it open, you're pezzing. You're pezzing? You're pezzing. That's a a slang word for it. We've got to get that started. Let's go pezzing today. Let's go pez. Let's go pez. Let's go pez. In the tradition precision to American markets, pez changed to their iconic fruity flavors and the Spencers acquired their character tops. Whether PEDS have actually discouraged smoking is debatable, but PEDS is still exists today as beloved combinations of candies and toys. You know when I back when I smoked cigarettes back in the day, I'm gonna walk past the PEDS candy. I was never like, damn, I don't want cigarettes now. <laughs> give, give, me some, give me a PEDS candy. That did, that did not work too well for me. Um, so, yeah, there's some interesting stories about our favorite candies. Um, let's see here. I'm going to go find a story about soft drinks that Andy's gonna, Angie's going to read to us. 13 weird facts about soda that make you say, holy crap, and then didn't say crap. Here you go. like something I need to drink. 13 weird facts about soda that'll make you say, holy shit. Number one, 7-Up used to have mood stabilizers in it. It was a lithiated lemon soda. Back when it launched in 1929, two weeks before the stock market crash that led to the Great Depression, 7-Up was known as a... Bim-label lithiated lemon-lime soda. Say that five times. Tongue twister. That lithiated bit refers to the fact that the drink had lithium citrate in it, a drug used mostly as a mood stabilizer for people with bipolar disorder. In fact, 7-Up kept the lithium carbonate citrate in it for its first 30 years or so 
first 30 or so years of existence until the brand drops the ingredient in 1950. So we just missed out. So we, we, had, we had, could have had Coke and Coca-Cola and lithium in 7-Up. I mean. They know, there's, there are people who know how to party. They know, they know what their soft drinks were, anything but soft. <laughs> Number two, Coca-Cola produces a kosher version for Passover. Back in the 1930s, an Atlanta rabbi lobbied the Coca-Cola company to produce a special version of Coke that used sweeteners that weren't derived from grains so that Jewish people could drink it during Passover. The result was a kosher Coke formula that is still available today. Just look for the yellow cap. So, so if you need kosher Coke, yellow cap. Now I'm going to go on the store looking for yellow caps on the Cokes. Fanta was created because of Nazis. During World War II, bottling Coca-Cola in Germany became difficult due to lack of supplies. The head of operations at the German division of the company, Max Keith, decided to create a new soda that can be made with more obtainable ingredients. Thus, Fanta was born. So Fanta was a product of Nazis. Ouch. Yeah. I knew I didn't. Kind of makes me wonder. Maybe we feel bad about drinking it. Number four. Coca-Cola is mostly responsible for the modern image of Santa Claus. Before the 1930s, Santa was often depicted wearing green or brown and was more solemn and stern. In 1931, Coca-Cola hired an artist, Haddon Sunbloom, to create art for their Christmas advertisements depicting Santa Claus drinking Coke. Working off the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, coquillately known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, Sundblom created a Santa that was much more jolly and friendly. And while Sundblom didn't invent the red suit, he did popularize it to the point where almost any modern depiction of Santa features the same outfit. Number five, Mountain Dew was made to go with whiskey. Mm, Good stuff. The citrus soda was made by two brothers from Tennessee, Allie and Barney Hartman, who enjoyed chasing their whiskey with lemon-lime soda so much that they decided to make their own. Even the name Mountain Dew is slang for moonshine. Number six, Coca-Cola's originally had both alcohol and cocaine in it. Talk about killing two birds. Yeah. Jeez. Well, so we actually saw this on that TV show. Yeah, that yeah, the, uh, the Food of America. I, mean, I forgot about the alcohol part of it. I remember the cocaine. John Pemberton, the inventor of Coca-Cola, first made a product called French Wine Coca that contained alcohol and cocaine. However, a local prohibition law made alcohol illegal in his country. So Pemberton dropped the booze and created Coca-Cola. The cocaine was still present in trace amounts up until 1929. Number seven, there are only two countries in the world where Coca-Cola doesn't conduct business. Those two countries are North Korea and Cuba which are both off-limits due to sanctions and trade embargo. Michigan, number eight. Michigan-based 
Sago has sweet, fruity flavors because the company's founders were bakers and based their drinks on frosting flavors. I love Sago. Their first three flavors were grape, fruit punch, and strawberry. I've never had grape frosting before. Number nine. Speaking of Sago, it might be the reason Midwesterners say pop instead of soda. Many credit the brand as the inventor of the twist-off cap. The popping sound the cap makes could be the reason why Midwesterners call it pop. Ten, sodas were originally marketed as health products. Fizzy drinks were thought to cure a huge range of ailments, from indigestion to hypertension. Sarsaparillas were even linked to curing syphilis. That's a lie. Number 11. Dr. Pepper tried to market itself as a warm beverage. We have tried this. Yeah, we, we, and it is actually very good. We, yeah. Every Christmas Eve, yes. we have warm Dr. Pepper. We have our, our tradition. It started uh, two years ago. We, we, we put Dr. Pepper in a saucepan, boil it, warm it up, and then put some lemon in it. Slice of lemon. Slice a little bit of lemon in there. It tastes like a, like a warm tea. It's, it's actually it's really actually good. It's super yes. good. Um, advertisements in the 1960s for Dr. Pepper encouraged customers to warm up the soda and add lemon for a hot drink in the winter. We, we do. Yes, do that. It's really good. I uh, promise. It is freak guaranteed. Number 12. In the 1980s, Coca-Cola put out advertisements to brand itself as a breakfast drink. The company started their Coke in the Morning campaign in an effort to convince people to get their morning caffeine from Coke instead of coffee. Which I do sometimes. Yeah. Number 13. The dimples on Sprite bottles are supposed to represent the drink's carbonation. Oh, interesting. Just in case you were wondering. How? Oh, like the bubbles, I guess? Yeah, it's supposed to look like the bubbles. Oh, I thought it was like for like a grip. I did too. Yes, that's it. It is 9.47. Seven, so you have time for one more article here. Uh, do, 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 do. These, 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 um. Oh, top 10 origins of, of favorite famous, famous soft drinks. You did that one? No. Uh, do, do, do. I'm gonna go through these ones. Um, we did the um, we did Mountain Dew already. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do um, Red Bull. Many people will be quick to point out that Red Bull is, is an energy drink, which it is, but it's still carbonated sugar water that makes a soft drink. So welcome to the list, Red Bull. This is the famous or its origins of our famous favorite soft drink. Sorry, forgot to say what I'm reading about. Um. The company was co-founded by an Austrian man named Dietrich Mateschitz. Mm. I don't know. Mateschitz, who earned a degree in marketing, worked for Unilever Jacobs Coffee and Blendex as a marketer. Due to his work, he traveled around a lot, and one of his trips led him to Thailand. While there, he drank what was being hailed as a cure for jet lag. And thanks to the amount of caffeine and taurine in it, the syrupy tonic drink did cure his jet lag. The drink was, was already popular across Asia, and Mateschitz 
saw the potential. He met with the brewer, Chalio Udvidia, um, and they made a deal where they would each receive 40% of the company for $500,000. Uvid's son owned the other 2%. Over the next several years, Matsushit tinkered with the product. He changed the recipe to appeal more to the to people in the West and carbonated it. He also designed the now recognizable blue and silver can and gave and a friend gave him their famous slogan, Red Bull gives you wings. With the with the drink ready for production in nineteen eighty seven, Matsushit used his years of marketing experience to push the to push the energy drink, the first of its kind. Of course, Red Bull has grown since those early days and both owners became multi billionaires. According to Forbes, Red Bull is worth Red Bull is worth seventy $7.7 billion. Hires Root Beer. Is Hires Root Beer still around? It's, I don't Hire, think so. I don't know. I haven't had a good Hires Root Beer in a while. I do remember getting Hires. I do remember Hires Root Beer. Vegan Hires Root Beer. And A&W and Barks and all those. Or Mug Root Beer. Um, drinks made from roots have been around for centuries. So it wasn't a new invention when Charles Hires tried root tea while on his honeymoon in New Jersey in the second half of the 19th century. He loved the root tea, and when, he, and when he, he returned home, the young pharmacy owner set to work making his own. His first, this is, you know, he's, he owned a pharmacy, and he goes home, he decides to make a soft drink. Who does that? I mean, it's like, I, I, you know, I, like, I like this. I'm going to go home and invent a soft drink. This, this, this stuff does not happen today. At first, he sold it as he sold it as packets of dry extracts of sarsaparilla, ginger, sassafras, and hops, and it was blended with roots, barks, and berries. Was then taken home, add sugar and yeast, and let it ferment. Then they bottle it themselves. Do it yourself, root beer. That's something. At first, it didn't sell too well. To boost sales, hires changed the name. To Hires Root Beer for the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. He thought the beer label would appeal to men. The name change worked, and Hires Root Beer grew in popularity. It was during this time that Hires tried to market, trademark the name Root Beer, but it was denied because it was too generic. In 1880, Hires made the root beer into electric to into a liquid extract. By 1892. They were selling 3 million bottles of extract a year. The liquid extract was available all the way into the 1920s before it was discontinued. A bottle with a finished product was introduced in 1893 and has been on sale ever since. However, the recipe has changed. It is now carbonated and has more sugar. At 140 years old, Hires is the oldest soft drink brand that is still sold today. Barks root beer. Uh, I'm gonna read about Canada Dry. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put this um, article on the Facebook page. So if you want to read the read these uh, this article and and learn about Barks root beer, more than welcome to. Because I've already read an article uh, a blurb about Canada Dry. I'll actually let Angie read this one. 
the creator of Canada Dry Ginger Ale, John James McLaughlin, was born in Enniskillen, Ontario, on March the 2nd, 1865. He studied pharmacy at school and in 1885 set up a small carbonating bottling plant in Toronto. There, he developed mixes and carbonated water. One mixture that he made, called McLaughlin-style ginger ale, found popularity in the United Kingdom. He decided to develop a similar drink that was dry and sparkling, like champagne. He spent 10 years working on it, and in 1904, he had perfected the recipe. A patent was filed on it, and in 1905, and two years later, he trademarked the name Canada Dry, dry Pale Ginger Ale. That was a tongue twister for me. Mm. Canada Dry Pale Ginger Ale. McLaughlin died in 1914 just as the company was starting to get off the ground, and his brother took over. Canada Dry was able to set themselves apart because they focused on selling it in ready-to-drink bottles, which was unusual for soft drinks at the time. A few things helped make Canada Dry so popular. The first was that since it was ready to drink, it was sold at places like the beach and baseball games. The second was prohibition. When Canada Dry was introduced in the 1920s in the United States, the 18th Amendment prohibiting alcohol was being enforced. Canada Dry became popular in speakeasies because it made illegal Canadian whiskey much smoother and easier to drink. From there, the company grew and changed hands multiple times. In 1953, they were the first soft drink to come in a can. Dr. Pepper's Snapple Group, Inc. owns the company today, and it's the third most produced soft drink in the world. I love that it came in a dry ginger ale. I like Northern Neck. I don't think they make Northern Neck anymore. They do make They it. do? Yeah. It's, it's hard to find. It's, I mean, it's better, but... Well, I think I like Northern Neck so much because it's, like, super dry. Yeah, very gingery. Very, yeah, I like it a lot. Burner's is a good is a good ginger ale. I don't think I've ever had that. They used to, um, used to go visit my family in Detroit. They used, used to only be able to get it up there. And it's like when you open the top up, open the can up, the bubbles, the bubbles from the can will tickle your nose and make you sneeze, yeah. yeah. So next one are Fanta. We've done that one already. Dr. Pepper. Oh, Dr. Pepper. I should read Dr. Pepper's. Dr. Pepper is my favorite. Go ahead. Read your Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper is famous for combining 23 different flavors. It even says it on the label. Perhaps that's why it's so surprising. It's actually the oldest carbonated flavored drink that is still sold today. Of course, Hires was was priorly created, but it was more of a tea drink that wasn't carbonated. In 1885, Waco, Texas, was a frontier town that held the ominous nickname Six Shooter Junction. In Waco, there was a pharmacy called the Old Drug. This was with pharmacists and soft drinks. What is it with so- pharmacists and soft drinks? Because they're like messing with it. Making to go to local Walgreens if there's someone who goes home, you know, at night and making a new soft drink for us we don't know about. 
customers were also getting bored with the usual flavors. So that's when Elderson started to mix the syrup until it came up with the Morrison started selling it, and it became popular enough that the other stores purchased the syrup, which didn't have a name. Instead, people just called it a Wisco. The name was chosen by the owner of the pharmacy. It's not exactly clear why Morrison chose it, but it's believed to be in honor of his friend, Dr. Charles Pepper, whom Morrison knew when he lived in Virginia. Supposedly, Morrison was in love with Pepper's daughter. However, when Morrison left Virginia to move to Waco, Pepper's daughter wouldn't have been eight, would have been eight years old, and he wouldn't have seen her since his move. Yet, that is the official story from Dr. Pepper. Soon the drink became so popular that they had problems making syrup. That's when they met Sam Houston, a man who owned a bottling plant in Dublin, Texas. From there, the business grew to be one of the best-selling soft drinks in the world. And some of its bottling is still done in Dublin, Texas, where you can buy the original Dr. Pepper formula, which is. Yes, it is. Oh, look, it's those little things that you like as a phone The pop, or, yeah, those popper things. Yeah. It is 9.58. We are almost done with the show. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, learning about different, different candies. And uh, stuff. Let me say one more thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do 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 You have one minute. You better hurry up. Uh, do do. Hurry. This is for requests. I put a picture of a bunch of candy uh-huh. on our thing, and people were, I want to learn about Smarties because they sell Smarties on the picture. So, so who, who wanted to learn about um, Smarties? Rhonda and my friend Kristen uh-huh. want to learn about Smarties. I'm going to go quick, quick story here. Smarties are a type of fruit-flavored tablet candy produced by Smarties Candy Company since 1949. Why they're called Smarties? The verb to smart means to have one's, one's face involuntary pucker, which is exactly what happens when you eat a Smartie. So that's what happens. Your face puckers up. That's why they're called a smarty. It has nothing to do with intelligence. <laughs> Doesn't make you smart. So, all right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Um, don't know if we're doing a show next week. Don't have, don't have a guest. So we may do another show like this. Where we do-